Several years ago, I think it was about uh, three years ago, we started this occasional series through whole books of God's Word, meeting on uh, the last Sunday evening of most months. Uh, we've moved that uh, to Sunday mornings just for the month of November this year. And uh, I think it was about three years ago when I started this, uh, this sermon series, I had just finished the first, se- the first sermon in all of them through the book of Genesis. And right after... A church member came up to me and she said, when are you doing Song of Songs? It's like, that's a long way away. But they were ready to get to it, ready to get to Song of Songs. Uh, I have um, anticipated this day with some trepidation. Even now, my knees are a little bit shaky. I don't know if it's from being in the baptistry and I don't have my sea legs yet, or if it's because of the content of this book that is before us. But today we turn to the Song of Songs. Uh, This last in the series of wisdom books or collection of wisdom books in the Old Testament. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. It's differently titled in different songs. We'll see why in just a moment. Uh, It's titled the Song of Solomon in my Bible, the English Standard Version, but I'm actually going to refer to it as the Song of Songs, and you'll see why here in just a minute. If you need help finding your way to Song of Songs, just take your Bibles, open them right to uh, the middle, and if you find yourself in Psalms or in Proverbs, turn a few pages to the right until you get to the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. If you end up in Isaiah or Jeremiah, you're going to want to go to the left until you land there. Song of Songs is a a relatively short book. It's about eight chapters long. It's going to take you maybe all of 30 minutes to read it out loud um, if you're you're reading it thoughtfully and carefully as you go through. I thought of a lot of different ways to introduce this text today. Um, I don't know any other than to say, here it is. Welcome to your Bibles. And uh, if this was a book of the Bible you were trying to keep secret or trying to hide from your children, sorry, it's out in the open now. Parents, deal with it. That was supposed to be said in jest. I say that as a parent who has children who will have to deal with it later. Let's deal with these particulars uh, of this book before we get into it here in just a moment. Uh, Hopefully you received a uh, note guide, uh, note sheet as you you entered in today, and you can follow along through there. When we think about uh, books of the Bible and studying whole books of the Bible, it helps us, first of all, to think about who is the human author that penned these words, that wrote these words. We know that God, through his Holy Spirit, inspiring uh, godly men through the ages, is the ultimate author of Scripture. All of Scripture is God's word, but it comes to us by God's Spirit through human authors. So who's the human author of the Song of Songs? Well, it's hard to say. The Song of Songs is said to be Solomon's, chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse of this uh, collection of love poems, as we'll see, says this. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now that designation, which is Solomon's, could mean a number of different things. It could mean Solomon wrote it. It could mean this is a song that's dedicated to Solomon on the day of his wedding. This could be that uh, this is a song that Solomon collected as a part of much of the wisdom that he curated during his reign as king. It's difficult to say whether Solomon is the author or not. Some people prefer to see Solomon as the author. I don't think it hurts us if we do. Uh, All I'm saying is that the text of Scripture isn't precisely clear that Solomon is the human author. It could be that that Solomon, hearing this song as he was king in Jerusalem from 971 to 931 BC or so, hearing this song, he thought, there's wisdom there. I'm collecting this. I'm going to add this to my collection of wisdom along with several proverbs and other things that I've written and keep this for God's people. 
There are some references that seem somewhat critical of Solomon's own approach to marriage in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, that, that would make the, the uh, Solomonic origin, or Solomon being the author, make it somewhat questionable. It seems at the end of this song that the writer of the Song of Solomon is, is, is maybe jabbing a little bit at, at Solomon's uh, procurement of 700 wives and 300 concubines here in this song that uh, celebrates so much marital love between one man and one woman. Hard to say, but if you like Solomon as the author, that's fine with me. I won't hold it against you. If Solomon is the author, then the writing of the song would date to sometime during his reign, again, 971 to 931 BC, when he was king in Jerusalem. There are, however, many parallels and um, similarities in the Song of Songs to ancient Egyptian love poetry. And so it could be that the Song of Songs has origins even far older than Solomon's reign. Again, perhaps leading to an understanding that maybe this was part of the wisdom that Solomon had collected and curated among the many Proverbs that he himself wrote and collected from others. How would we summarize the Song of Songs? Well, I'll give it a stab. Song of Songs is, hold on to your hats, folks, a sensual, poetic celebration of divinely designed marital sex. That's what Song of Songs is. Some of you look, are looking at me incredulously, like, really? And the answer is yes, and you'll see that in just a minute. Now, without being crass or crude or profane, Song of Songs pulls no punches about the joy of marital intimacy. This is a song celebrating the physical love between a man and his wife. And at the same time, this song also gives strong support to the importance of sexual chastity and purity outside of covenantal marriage. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. There are many themes that run through uh, this collection of love poems. Three of them I've outlined for us. You'll see them as we work through the text this morning, and you'll see them as you read Song of Songs on your own. First of all, First among major themes, and this is the most pronounced theme, that physical intimacy is a joy of marriage. Physical intimacy is a joy of marriage. It's not a thing that, that God has, has given to be purely mechanical or whatever, but, but it is meant to bring joy and delight between a man and his wife. Second, it is right, it is good, friends, to delight in your spouse. That's a theme of this song. This is part of God's word. God's saying, husbands, delight in your wives. Wives, delight in your husbands. This is a gift of God. Third, among major themes that we see is that physical intimacy requires more than just physical stuff. Physical intimacy requires mutual vulnerability that comes only with sincere covenant faithfulness. The kind of intimacy that the writer of the Song of Songs speaks about can only come when two people are totally vulnerable with one another in the, the safe confines of covenant marriage. Now, knowing that Song of Songs is a collection of uh, essentially love poems, it may be difficult for us to think about how to place or where to place Song of Songs in the scope of God's redemption history, in the scope of what God is, is doing to save sinners by His grace through faith in His Son throughout history. Where does Song of Songs, where does a collection of love poems fit there? I think, or I would place it, probably there most closely to that epic of God's redemption history called creation. That first step where God makes everything perfect, where God designs everything just the way that he would want it to be, where there in the garden you have Adam and Eve and they are together, they are naked and unashamed and they enjoy all of life prior to the fall that God intended without any brokenness, without any relational strife, without any strain there. 
Song of Songs gives us an idyllic picture of marital love that harkens back to what it was designed for, how God designed it in the beginning. So if you have a pencil or pen or crayon, whatever you're taking notes with today, you may want to circle that word creation. And you may want to draw an arrow from creation, an overarching arrow, maybe to consummation, because this collection of love songs between a man and his bride, between a woman and her groom, also looks forward to a different kind of intimacy, a greater kind of intimacy that Christ will have with his church when he comes again. Now, what do we do when we read Song of Songs and study it on our, on our own? Well, it helps for us to remember that this falls into that category again of wisdom literature in the Bible. Like Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs is a, uh, a, a part of the Hebrew wisdom corpus. The Song of Songs differs from other wisdom literature. You'll notice this in a minute. It's very different from Proverbs. It's very different from Job. It's very different from Ecclesiastes because it takes the form not of a a prosaic sort of uh, clips of wisdom or reflections on life. It takes the form of love poetry and really good love poetry. Wisdom literature often, we have said, defies a sort of soundbite synopsis. You can't just go picking and choosing what things from biblical wisdom literature that you like. Rather, in order to understand all that the author is saying through these books of wisdom, we have to read the whole book before we come to a final conclusion about what wisdom is there for us in this book. So I encourage you, if you can, read Song of Songs all the way through, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8, and all the while ask these questions of yourself. What is this text, what is this song telling me about God and His his character? What is this text teaching me about the nature of humanity or even God's design for marital love? How does this text instruct me to live in light of these truths that I've gained, in light of who God is and what he desires for me? How does it instruct me to live? And how does this text call me to trust God? How does it call me to worship him? This is the point, the purpose of wisdom literature, to lead us in a life that pleases God and fulfills his design for us. Now, Song of Songs is notoriously difficult to outline. There are some books of the Bible that are really easy to outline. Genesis, though it's long, follows a relatively clear progression of narrative from the first chapter through the 50th chapter. But a collection of love songs doesn't quite do the same. Now, there are some scholars of the Old Testament who see a narrative progression through the course of the Song of Songs. I think they may be reaching a little bit to find it, um, but that's okay. They're creative, and that's why they're scholars, and I'm not. But if I were going to uh, uh, outline just very simply for you the Song of Songs, you would have uh, what you have in your, note, in your note sheet, in your note guide this morning, kind of five parts that move us through Song of Songs. You have the title, first of all. This is the song above all songs, chapter 1, verse 1. Then from chapters 1 through uh, near the end of chapter 4, you see the two lovers, the man and the woman, she and he, as it's maybe subtitled in your Bible. You see them longing for each other. They want to be together. There is a marriage ceremony that's taking place in the early chapters of the book, and the two are growing in their heightened anticipation of the wedding night. And the wedding night comes as the two consummate their marriage in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4 through the first verse of chapter 5. Then in the next three or four chapters, chapter 5 through 8, you have these two lovers, he and she, delighting in one another. They are enjoying the pleasures of marriage. And then in the final verses, we have some wisdom for marital intimacy uh, that come to us in, uh, in the Word here. I've subtitled this sermon today, Joy of the Beloved. 
joy of the beloved. We have this uh, refrain throughout the course of Song of Songs. I am my beloved's and he is mine. I am my beloved's and he belongs to me. There's this picture of these two people, a man and a woman, united in the bonds of covenant marriage that are delighting, that are taking joy in the fact that they belong to each other. So let's see then what Song of Songs has for us, the church, in the year 2021. First of all, and this relates to the first theme that uh, noted just a moment ago, Song of Songs teaches us that physical intimacy is meant to be joyful. Physical intimacy is meant to be joyful. If you miss this in the course of Song of Songs, friend, you have not read the Song of Songs very well at all. The song itself is sung, as you'll find in your different translations, by three parts. There's a man, in my Bible it's subtitled he, there's a woman, his bride, in my Bible it's subtitled she, or there's a kind of a little caption above the stanzas that follow there, and there's a third part that's sung by a chorus of people. Again, in my Bible it says others. These could be the daughters of Jerusalem that the woman uh, refers to several times throughout the song. It could be uh, like a, just a chorus of people. Uh, could be that this song, as it was sung on the days of preparation leading up to a marriage in ancient Israel, that a woman would sing these parts and her bridegroom would sing these other parts and the other people, the wedding guests, or maybe those that are in the bridal party, they would sing the parts that are designated others. All of this is meant to celebrate and encourage the kind of physical intimacy that takes place in marriage. So let's just take a look at a few passages or or, or a number of passages to see this celebration of physical intimacy within the confines of marriage. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, she sings, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. In chapter 2, she sings about him again. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. In chapter 4, he sings about her. He compliments her, her appearance, and he praises it. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Now, just for a moment, because this is love poetry... There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of uh, figures that are being used here. And so um, we, we need to kind of read through the figures. If we read his description of her literally, as you'll see in a moment, or, or too literalistically, uh, we will get really confused about what he's saying about his wife. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats sleeping down the slopes of Gilead. Now listen, today, that's probably not going to get her attention, gentlemen. If you say, your hair looks like so much goat fur. (laughs) But in those days, goats are a a symbol of, of wealth and prosperity, right? It's a good thing that he says your hair looks like goats. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. You've brushed them all. That have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not only have you brushed them, but you have all of them. And not one of them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Super long. I'm just kidding. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields. All of them shields of warriors. 
Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. He continues in chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Together they sing back and forth in chapter 4, verse 16, through the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Awake, O north wind, and come. O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden, she sings, and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Together the others, the chorus, sing, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Brothers and sisters, there's no avoiding it. There's no getting around it in the song. Physical, sexual intimacy is meant to be joyful and to be enjoyed. Scripture's clear about that. It's, it's forward about that in a way that makes us kind of, it's kind of awkward. Like Song of Songs almost feels like the kind of thing that, that you know, young teenage boys would be reading in the back of the worship center and snickering at each other while the pastor preaches about the doctrine of atonement or something like that. Dude, did you see what's in the Bible? Well, there it is, friends. This kind of joy, this kind of delight that's meant to take place uh, uh, between a married man and woman goes all the way back, as we saw or, or noticed earlier, to the creation of man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And as you read through Song of Songs, you'll see lots of garden imagery. Trees and pomegranates and apples and streams and milk and honey. There in the garden, God made the man and the woman, and he said in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The creation command that comes in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply, is a command given to the man and the woman to fill the earth through the fruitful, unashamed, joyful sexual union that man and woman were made for and that their marriage has brought them together for. Physical intimacy is meant to be joyful. What the Song of Songs teaches us as well is that sex is not just a mechanical thing for procreation. That is not just this drudgery that we go through in order to fulfill the creation uh, mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Sexual intimacy, physical intimacy between a man and a woman united in the bonds of marriage is for them to also enjoy, to delight in as a gift of God to their marriage. I get it. It's controversial to say this on a Sunday morning from the pulpit. But over and again in the song, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The Song of Songs that appears right in the middle of our Bibles as God's Word. This is made obvious to us. That these two people, this man, this woman, love one another. And delight in each other. And the chorus of people that sing along with them celebrates their joy in physical intimacy. Friends, physical intimacy between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage is meant to be joyful. Song of Songs pulls no punches about that. But second, Song of Songs also teaches us that intimacy is not just physical. As much as this song celebrates physical intimacy between a man and a woman, it also teaches us that real intimacy is not just in physical expression. The man and the woman in the song are clearly enraptured with one another physically. They love looking at one another and complimenting each other on how they look. 
Even the woman gets in on the complimenting. You'll see in chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. She says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Show off. His eyes... His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. He does so many push-ups. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires and crunches too. His legs are alabaster columns. The dude does so many squats set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice is the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Their relationship between the man and the woman, celebrated in this song, is far deeper than appearances and physical attraction, though. They spend a lot of time complimenting each other on their looks. But their relationship, the relationship that exists between the two, the kind of intimacy that they share, is way, 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 way more than physical. Five times in the song, the man calls his bride sister. Chapter 4, three times, and chapter 5, twice. He calls his bride sister. Now, this is not an incestuous relationship. This is not a biological brother and sister getting married together. But instead, it's a recognition of the respect and even of the equality that these two have before one another in their marriage. The woman is not this man's plaything but someone that he honors and whose reputation and whose safety he will protect. Even she says of him, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 16, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. These two are deeply physically intimate, yes. And that physical intimacy is celebrated throughout the song, but their relationship is far deeper than just sex, friends. It's an intertwining of their lives at the deepest level of who they are. The two shall become one flesh, Genesis says. We see that one fleshness on display in the way that they relate to each other. My bride, my sister, this is my beloved, this is my friend. The two becoming one flesh is about intermingling their very souls. So men, do you see your wife this way? Do you see her as your dignified equal? Do you see your wife as a treasure to be guarded and to be nurtured? Women, do you see your husband as your beloved friend to be trusted with the deepest longings and hurts and even dreams of your heart? We are meant to. Husbands, we're meant to see our wives this way. Wives, we're meant to see our husbands this way. The intimacy that we share with our spouses should be this deep, that we can speak about our wives, brothers, as our sister. Wives, that you can speak about your husbands as not only your beloved, but also your friend. Intimacy is more than just physical. The Song of Songs exposes the lie of the sexual revolution that has taken place over the last several decades, that that sex is just sex. It's just a biological function. It's just a thing that you do with your body. In the song that is greater than all songs, which is what Song of Songs means, sex is the physical demonstration and the appropriate expression of a love and commitment that has already been expressed in the souls of a man and a woman. Physical intimacy is meant to be joyful, yes, but intimacy is way more than just physical, we see in the song. Third, we see this before we get into some specific wisdom about what this song has, uh, uh, wisdom this song has for us today. Third, uh, in the song, we see this, that physical intimacy, joyful as it is, deeper than, just phys- uh, d- deeper than just physical, but this kind of intimacy displayed is meant for marriage. 
physical intimacy on the level to the degree that the Song of Songs sings about and celebrates is meant for marriage. Now, certainly this song is about a married couple on their wedding night. There's lots of marriage and wedding imagery, wedding uh, parade or wedding procession imagery in the early chapters. But do not miss that this song is also a celebration and an encouragement of God's design for sex to take place in the safety of covenant marriage. This song celebrates physical intimacy, yes, but the song also celebrates covenant marriage as the only proper context for this kind of intimacy. Three times in the song, the woman says, in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 8, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Love expressed physically, passionately, sensually like it is in the Song of Songs, physical love that deserves to be celebrated like this, this kind of physical intimacy is a heavy thing. It's a thing of great significance. It's a thing of great meaning. It is not a thing to be thrown around flippantly or carelessly. The bride and the groom of the song are naked and unashamed in an idyllic sense like the first man and first woman were in the Garden of Eden. And this lack of shame comes not because of the surpassing level of passion that they have for one another. They they are not shameless and naked before one another because they're just so into each other. No, they are naked and unashamed because of the safety and the strength of the foundation for this love that their marriage has created. Physical intimacy for which God has created us as a a part of our embodied state is meant to be joyful. It's meant to bring closeness between a man and a woman as they share in that together. But it's a heavy, weighty thing. Sex like fire cultivated in the bond of marriage is meant to burn hot and bright and to give life and warmth and exhilaration to a married couple. But like a wildfire without containment, sex and sexual expression apart from marriage has massive destructive power. And my guess, friends, is that a good many of us know the pain that unbridled sexual impulses can bring to you personally. Physical love is a gift of God. It's meant to warm a family's hearth and home, strengthen relational bonds within the family. It's meant to give a godly means for sexual fulfillment and even enjoyment for married couples. The marriage covenant, these these promises to love one another, promises that are not based on how I feel today or how I might feel tomorrow, but promises that are based on a choice to love another person, these kind of covenant commitments for always and forever, regardless of our life situation, are the only foundation that can bear the weight of the vulnerability and exhilaration of physical intimacy like we see in the song. Said differently, physical love, physical uh, intimacy, like we see in the song of songs celebrated there outside of the bonds of marriage, is too heavy for any relationship that is not as strong as covenant marriage. It will cause it to collapse. It will bring ruin upon that part of your life. It will hurt, and it will hurt for a long, long time. Physical intimacy is meant for marriage, the song teaches us. There's a lot of other things that we could go through in the Song of Solomon this morning. Um, We won't do that today. I just encourage you, read it on your own. Maybe read it with your spouse. um, Reflect on it together and be encouraged by it. 
But where do we find wisdom from the Song of Songs for those of us in various different places in life today? I see at least four sources of wisdom or four, four audiences for wisdom in the song. First of all, wisdom from the Song of Songs for spouses, for those who are married here today. First of all, know this. This is wisdom from the song. Your body belongs to your spouse. Your body belongs to your spouse. Twice in the song, the woman sings, My beloved is mine and I am his. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. In marriage, brothers and sisters, you belong to your spouse. Now, the sexual revolution of the last 50 or 60 years, some of you actually lived through and, and watched and observed as you lived through it. I, born in the 1980s, and most of us born thereafter, we're just living in the wake of all of this mess. But the sexual revolution is based upon a radical sense of personal, uh, uh, individual, uh, uh, personal expressions of, of individualistic uh, preference or whatever. And, and the sexual revolution, Carl Truman, author of a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he says the sexual revolution is based on foundations way, way older than the 1960s or 1970s. It goes all the way back to the, 19, or the 1800s and the 1900s, wherein uh, philosophers were encouraging people to live your whole self, follow your dreams, express yourself individually. That's where fulfillment is. So the radical individualism of the sexual revolution says to us, do what you want with your body. Sex is just sex. It's just a biological function. It's like breathing, Right? With biblical sexual ethics says, no, sexually, your body doesn't belong to you. I'm my beloved's and he is mine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, writing to the church, he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In marriage, brothers and sisters, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. This truth all at once excludes adultery, It all at once excludes sex outside of the bonds of marriage. And at the same time, it commands mutual service and care for one another's bodies in the marriage bed. Spouses, your body belongs to your spouse. But also, Song of Songs calls us, gives us wisdom to know that we ought to treat our spouses with delicate care and deep respect. Already we saw the way that the couple's intimacy in the song is displayed in the depth of their emotional relationship, the depth of their commitments to one another. Their sexual experience is a a robust strengthening of of the commitments of their hearts. Married couples, I dare say to you that your level of sexual satisfaction in your marriage will be a clear indicator of how well you care for and respect one another. Husbands and wives, the greater you love and respect one another in every room of the house and in everything that you do together outside of the bedroom, the better and more rewarding will be the love and and respect that you show in the bedroom. Treat your spouse with delicate care and deep respect. Because what happens in the marriage bed uh, is just a, a further reflection of the way that you treat each other everywhere else you are in life. Spouses, your body belongs to your spouse. So treat your spouse with delicate care and deep respect. Where does the Song of Songs have wisdom then for those who are not married, for singles? Well, at least this one place. And you probably already see this coming. Singles, reserve sex for marriage reserve sex for marriage. If I could say it more strongly, guard, fiercely protect sex for marriage. My dear single brothers and sisters, this can be, Song of Songs can be a hard book of the Bible for us to read. You recognize likely that God has made you a man or a woman with sexual desires. And this book just highlights that for you all the more. 
I read earlier this week that there's an old Jewish tradition that, that men were not allowed to read or encouraged to read the Song of Songs until they were 30 years old. And I can see why. But my single friends, those who are not married, see in this song not only the celebration of marital sexual fulfillment, but see also the celebration of guarding that fulfillment until the day of marriage. Do not awaken love until it pleases. As the song closes, the chorus of people chime in one more time. In chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, they sing to this woman and to this man, We have a sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, we will enclose her with with boards of cedar. The woman sings, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Here in this, these, these two, three verses near the end of the song, the chorus of people asks, what do we do for our sister who is not yet married and is not yet ready to be married? And they answer their own question, don't they? If she has guarded herself sexually, then we will adorn her guard with precious silver. And if she has closed the door to sexual experience until the day of marriage, we will add to that the cedar bars of our encouragement and our prayer. And then the day that she is married will be one, a day of radiant glory, a day of of radiant joy for the one who finds her chasteness truly beautiful, for the one that finds in her a person of peace. My single friends know that sex is a gift of God to a married man and a woman. So if you're not yet married, set up a guard against awakening physical love until it pleases. Guard that. If God has designed it to be a a good thing for a married man and woman, then don't awaken love until it pleases. Set a strong guard against that. Guard your hearts. Guard your minds. Guard your phones. Guard your computers. Guard your dating life. That you not awaken love until it pleases, knowing that when the time comes, God will make it truly delightful in His time and in His way. This is also a word to those who are maybe separated or divorced from their spouses, who, who are maybe single not by choice because a marriage has fallen apart. Even for you, divorcees, do not awaken love until it pleases. If love is meant for the confines of marriage and you find yourself presently not married because of the disillusion of your marriage, guard your sex life as well. Guard those physical impulses. Set up a wall around yourself. Set up doors to entry. Keep yourself from expressing yourself physically outside of the bonds of marriage. And may I just say to those who are divorced and hurting by it, that there's still hope for you in the gospel of Jesus. There's hope for reconciliation and restoration of your marriage in Jesus. If if he can die on the cross to take all the weight of our sin and shame on himself, to give us new life from within, if he can bring dead souls to life, friends, he can bring dead marriages to life. So if you're divorced and hurting over that and guarding yourself sexually, good, I encourage you, keep doing it. But pray maybe that God would lead you to a path of restoration in your marriage, that you might enjoy afresh and anew all of the the joy of the Song of Songs from a, a totally redeemed perspective. There's wisdom in the song for spouses. There's wisdom in the song for singles. There's wisdom in the song for sexual sinners. And my guess is that this is most of us, if we're being honest. You may, be, you may be saying, well, I've never had sex outside of marriage. I've never cheated on my husband or my wife. I'm not really a sexual sinner. But I will remind you of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. 
In this day and age in which we live, where pornography is, is at an all-time like epidemic status, I don't, I don't know a person among us who, who, may, who probably doesn't have some kind of sexual sin in our past. So to sexual sinners who come to the Song of Songs looking for wisdom, know this. You are more than the sum total of your sexual sins. You are more than the sum total of your sexual sins. Church family, I stand before you as a sexual sinner saved and kept by the grace of God in Jesus. Listen, if you're, if you're someone who struggles with the weight, with the burden of sexual sin in your past, you're not alone. You've got at least one friend in the room in me, okay? I read the Song of Songs. And while I find in it an encouragement to me in my own relationship to my wife, I also see in the shadows of this book my own sexual sins in the past. And you probably do too. Maybe they're haunting you even right now. But hear me, hear me, hear me. Just as scripture says you are more than the sum total of your individual sexual desires, it also declares to you that you are more than the sum total of your sexual sins. You bear the image of God and the imprint of his character on your soul, my dear friend. You may be burdened, you may be haunted by your sexual sin. And if that's the case, listen to me. When Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't just say it to a certain kind of people with certain kinds of socially acceptable sins. He says it to sexual sinners as well. You don't have to go very far in the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, where you see Jesus sitting down at a well in the middle of the day with a woman of Samaria who had five husbands and is currently living with a guy that she's not married to. And what does Jesus do? Condemn her for her sin? No. Does he shy away from her sin? No. But in talking with her and conversing with her and promising that he can give her streams of living water welling up in her soul to give her life, she recognizes that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God. And he tells her, go and sin no more. He receives her into his kingdom He says, go and sin no more. Jesus has a heart for sexual sinners. And he says even to them, come to me and I will give you rest. So because Jesus gives this invitation to sexual sinners too, and not just the kind of sins that are okay to talk about in public, like your road rage, that means that sexual sinners can come to Jesus for mercy. Sexual sinners can come to Jesus for peace, for forgiveness, for healing for help to be done with pornography, for help to admit to a spouse an illicit affair and to begin reconciliation. Sexual sinner, you can come to Jesus for strength to restore and restart a marriage torn by divorce. So come to him. Come to him. You and your life are not irredeemable just because you're a sexual sinner. The kind of intimacy and marriage and exhilaration in the Song of Songs is not just for those people who have been especially pure in life but for all who are made clean by the blood of Jesus and who depend on him who makes all things new. There's finally wisdom in the Song of Songs for victims of sexual sin. As Pastor Danny and I were talking about Song of Songs earlier this week, preparing uh, for this sermon, um, and and just thinking out loud with him about how how in the world do we apply this song to the church? Uh, He pointed out, and, and I think this is just the Holy Spirit speaking with wisdom through him, that those who read the Song of Songs may come to it and it may, it may reveal a lot of pain points in their life. Some may come to Song of Songs and just celebrate in it. Some may come to it and just see all these places of pain and hurt in their life. And one of those pain points for you may be that you are a victim of sexual sin. 
you've been victimized by someone else in this way. To you who may be a victim of sexual sin, reading the Song of Songs today, my word to you is this, there is hope and healing for you. There's hope and healing for the pain that this song may may shine a light on. My very dear friends, you may be hearing this today is someone who has been taken advantage of by a trusted person in, in the most wrong and inappropriate of ways. And because of that abuse, you have all kinds of confusing and painful thoughts and feelings about sex. So let me say one thing to you personally, and let me give you one encouragement from the Song of Songs. First of all, a personal word. Friend, if you are the victim of sexual sin, know this today. You are not guilty for the sexual sins done against you. You are not guilty for those sins done against you. You're not guilty for the abuse that you endured. You didn't bring that on yourself. Precious child, dear woman, my brother, God sees the pain of sins done against you. And know this, he does not turn a blind eye to it. He will, in his time and in the right way, in perfect timing, judge all wickedness. And he'll judge it rightly and he'll judge it perfectly, including and especially the sort of wickedness that may have been done to you. But he also turns his eye and extends a compassionate hand to you in your pain. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He says that to sexual sinners and he says that to victims of sexual sin too. Know this, friend, if you've been abused this way and Song of Songs points out that, that part of pain in your life, if I can help you personally, this is my personal invitation, if I can help you as your pastor, as your friend, as your brother, in any small way to turn to God, to run to Him, to call on Him for help and for healing because of the hurt that has been done to you, please, let's go to Him together. Find me after worship this morning as we dismiss. Let me know the pain that's in your heart that Song of Songs has revealed, and let's run to Jesus together. But now an encouragement to you who are the victims of sexual sin from Song of Songs. Being the victim of this kind of sin can taint and can jade the way that we see and extend romantic love. We might read Song of Songs and think, I can never have that kind of relationship with somebody because of what was done to me in the past. I encourage you this morning, try with God's help to see in the Song of Songs, in the way that it celebrates marital sexual love, see in the Song of Songs a pattern to follow and how you express love in the future. Don't see it as a condemnation of all the things you can never be. See it as an encouragement of all the things that God may have for you in the confines of covenant marriage. A pattern to follow in how you express love in the future. And and even a model of the heart of a man or a woman who will love you well as a husband or a wife. Song of Songs is not just God's encouragement for marital sexual fulfillment. It's also a guide to the heart of a spouse who will love you deeply and who will love you well. So if you've been abused by another, look in the Song of Songs for the pattern of the heart of a man or a woman who will not abuse you that way, but who will love and care for, respect and delight in you in all the ways that God has designed you to be loved, to be cared for, to be respected. Now we want in this series always to look through all of Scripture, even as we sang this morning, all the promises of God have their yes and their amen in Christ. And that includes Song of Songs. (laughs) Oddly, awkwardly enough. Where do we see Christ in Song of Songs? Or where do we see signposts to who Christ is and the hope that he has for a lost and dying world in Song of Songs? Well, I don't know if we see a a type of Christ with the kind of clarity that we would see in like 
Maybe the history of David as king of Israel who, who will have a son who will rule on the throne forever as God promises to him in Second Samuel. But we see Jesus uh, and the hope that he brings kind of maybe a little bit more on the periphery of the Song of Songs. I see it in two ways. First of all, we see Christ or, or anticipation of Jesus in Song of Songs this way, that marital love is to be a living picture of Christ's love for his church. Marital love, like, like that on the scale of the man and the woman in Song of Songs, is meant to be a living picture of Christ's love for his church. In the history of Christianity, some people have tried to read the Song of Songs as an allegorical tale about the love that Christ has for the church. The man is allegorical, stands in as an, an allegory for Christ, and the woman stands in as an allegory for the church. And, uh, and if that's the case, friends, that's really an awkward way to read the Song of Songs. Let's be clear. There's nothing sexual about the relationship of Christ to the church. Not at all. And that's not what the Song of Songs is about. But the love and the mutual delight in one another present in marital love, like in the Song of Songs, is meant to be a picture of Christ in the church. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 32. Listen to this patiently. Paul says to the church, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. How does Christ love the church? Deeply and even more intimately and sacrificially than the most meaningful and intimate of human relationships. Marital love is meant to be a living picture of Christ's love for his church as he gives all of himself for her sanctification and as she gives all of herself for his glory. Second, marital intimacy is meant to draw us to ultimate intimacy. Marital intimacy is meant to draw us to ultimate intimacy. The closeness of relationship, this, this mingling of souls, as Pastor Matt Chandler calls it, that takes place in marriage, the intimacy of the one fleshness of marriage, ultimately is meant to draw us to take our attention to an even deeper and fulfilling kind of intimacy with Christ. In the final book of the Bible, Revelation, we receive a vision and a preview of what will come at the end of this age when Christ comes in glory to gather the church to himself. And there in Revelation 19, John describes the union of Christ to his church as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb being Christ who is the bridegroom. There's a day of, of final and perfect union between the bridegroom and his bride. Christ the bridegroom, the church the bride, who is herself made ready and clothed in fine linen, which is bright and pure, will there on that final day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, be united to live forever in the glorious knowledge and love of one another. Ultimately, friends, even marital love ends in this life. In our wedding, wedding vows, we make promises to one another with the final caveat, till death do us part. 
which means that the day at the moment of the death of one or both spouses, the, the marriage vows have been fulfilled. They've been finished. There's no promises left to keep. Not so with the love of God in Christ, though. God does not say to us in Christ, I love you and I'll keep you forever till death do us part. Not even close. The love that God has for us in Christ, the, the, the union that we have with Christ by faith in Him surpasses even death. We read it in our call to worship this, this morning, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in this laundry list of all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The intimacy that we share with our spouses, dear friends, is meant to draw us to an ultimate intimacy. The closeness that we share with our wives, that we share with our husbands, in the bonds of of marriage and the physical love that takes place there is not the be-all, end-all of intimacy in this life. Union with Christ is. Because marriage lasts until death, we do part. But union with Christ goes on far beyond that into eternity. The kind of intimacy that we are designed for, as we see sung about and celebrated in Song of Songs, is not to be one of mere individual expression. Intimacy is not just whatever you want to do with yourself, but it's meant to be the sort of life-giving relational union between a married man and a woman that ultimately points us and that ultimately points to everyone who observes our lives as Christian couples to this kind of godly Christian intimacy with Jesus. Not because Jesus provides a better kind of sexual fulfillment, not even close, but because he offers a relational closeness to God, our creator, that fulfills our every longing. He does this by taking the pain and the scandal of all of our sin and shame on himself at the cross, and he invites everyone, everyone, no matter the the weight of their burden of sin, no matter the depth of their sin, no matter the long laundry list of sin that they bring behind them, he calls everyone to come to him for rest for life, for unrivaled closeness to our Creator. And it is yours. Union with Christ is yours if you'll simply turn from sin and trust in Him. Give Him your life to be healed. Well, that was awkward. But it's God's Word. And friends, I dare say that there are more awkward places of Scripture in God's Word even than Song of Songs. I pray that this has encouraged you. Married couples, I, I, I pray that this, that this song works God's purposes to enliven your relationship to one another. Singles, I pray that this song uh, gives you all the more steadfastness to guard, to guard your sexual life until marriage. Brothers and sisters, we who know single friends, let's help them. Let's set up a battlement of silver around their wall. Let's set up bars of cedar of prayer and encouragement to those who are waiting for marriage. I pray that it gives hope to those of you who may be divorced and hurting from the result of divorce, hope for restoration and reconciliation. I pray it gives a bit of healing, a bit of balm from the hands of Christ to those who who hurt over their own sins or the sins that have been done them by others. But this is God's word and it's meant for our good. I pray that it would do its work in us. Will you pray with me?